People of the post-apocalyptic afterscape, it is I, Clemis Theridus, High Septon of the American Wasteland and Lady of the Last Hearth. I come before you with some new proposals. The first is that we begin planting this. It's a ground nut, and it will give us protein that our foraging diet does not provide. What are they saying? They say this is too much like the ideas of the great Sky Father Trump, who brought destruction to our tribes at the end of the happy, shiny times. But this is nothing like... never mind. Next item. This is called a hypocost. It is a design for a system that conducts heat underground so we can sleep safely there at night and not be dragged away by direwolves. Again, they say the Skyfather Trump brought ruin upon us with such strange ideas. You know what? This happens every week. I come in here with some reasonable proposals and you guys shoot them down because you say it's too much like Trump. You don't even know whether that's true. All written records were destroyed by Eric and Ivanka during the second rectification of the Voldrini. Just forget about Trump and concentrate on the present so we can start winning again. See, remembering causes social paralysis. That's part of the topic of this show today, which you are fortunate enough to enjoy before the destruction of all broadcast capacity. Which will happen, but not because you ignored the lessons of the past. And now he connects every disaster to the cancellation of Howdy Doody, Colin McEnroe. So that's some of the focus of our show today. To what degree do the lessons of the past instruct us? And to what degree do they distort reality? Uh, and to what degree do they lead us to false conclusions or, or trap us uh, in, in old ideas? So I'll just give you a quick example that I thought of while reading the book of one of our guests today, David Reif. His book is In Praise of Forgetting Historical Memory and Its Ironies. So uh, when my father was still alive and he was uh, working as a playwright on Broadway uh, to producers who were Jewish, uh, tried to take him to a tavern or an uh, eating place or something called the Oliver Cromwell. And my father, who was a very cantankerous person who really liked to nurse grievances, like many uh, Irishmen, uh, exploded in rage and said that he was not walking in there uh, and that uh, he would not take them to a tavern called the Adolf Hitler, not that there was one. Uh, and it was pretty much the same thing as far as he was concerned and blah, 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 blah. And I, I loved my father, but this is exactly the kind of thing that he would do. And reading Reef's book, I'm thinking, you know, I mean, to what degree did Oliver Cromwell at this point pose some kind of real problem for my father? Uh, I mean, to what degree did it make any sense <laughs> to, to make a stand about walking into a place called the Oliver Cromwell? And I think that's, in a very blunt way, some of the questions that, that David Reef uh, surgically uh, and subtly uh, brings up in, in praise of forgetting. So he's with us today from the uh, NPR studios in New York. In studio with us is Mark Oppenheimer, editor-at-large for Tablet Magazine, who writes the monthly beliefs column for the New York Times, a host of the Unorthodox podcast. You have to listen to the Unorthodox podcast. I have appeared on the Unorthodox podcast as the the token goy. Or what was that? No, no, no. You, were, you were Gentile of the Week. Gentile of the Gentile Week. Gentile of the Week. Yeah, I thought like token goy. Well, um, <laughs> not all of our guests, I think, would like it that much. But. All right. So, um, and he's the author of only three books. I feel like you've written more than three books. I, no, I well, just, then there's some I, e-books and there's, there's you know, some e-books. Uh, all right, and I've only been paid for three books. There's so. a line <laughs> of children's toys and stuff too. So, and including Thirteen in a Day and Weisenheimer. So, um, David Reef, uh, we want to begin with you, and um, and maybe you would be willing to parse, since you've spent quite a bit of your recent time in Ireland, uh, my father <laughs> and his resistance to walking into a little tavern called the uh, called the Oliver Cromwell. This is kind of a little bit of what, what you're talking about here. Is obviously the Irish. Uh, 
uh, would have some basis for objecting to Oliver Cromwell and objecting to the crown. And you uh, document this very well. And there's some beautiful turns of phrase by both you and some Irish writers uh, about all this. But how productive is that really? And to what degree does it instruct us as we try to shape our own behavior in the present? Well, I don't think it, first of all, thanks for having me on. I I don't think it instructs us at all. On the contrary, it keeps the grudge and the fight going, which may be useful in the middle of a fight, but I don't know how useful it would have been on Broadway in whatever year you're talking about. I mean, there was a one of the great Northern Irish critics, Edna Longley, uh, once said that the, what the Irish should do, in fact, was erect a, mem- uh, a statue to amnesia and then forget where they put it. Um, <laughs> I, my view is that in Ireland, in the Balkans, in Israel-Palestine, that certain kinds of historical memory are not just toxic, but actually incitement to more war and 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 uh, catastrophe. Uh, you know, if if you really, I mean, Cromwell did indeed murder a great many Irish people, uh, but I'm not sure that remembering that does modern Ireland any good. There was an Irish politician whom you, you'll know, and I'm sure if I'm reading your father's, inferring correctly about your father's politics, your father probably detested, called Conor Cruz O'Brien. And he was involved in the early negotiations after the Troubles began in the 60s. He was a member of Fitzgerald's government. And um, he said that every time they got close, either uh, the Unionist side or the Sinn Féin, the Republican side, would remember, as he put it, one of those damned songs, and the negotiations would go to hell. Mm. And that's a mild version of what happened in the Balkans. I was a reporter in, in the Bosnian War and some of the other ones in the, in the aftermath of Yugoslavia, if you like. Uh, and people would mobilize themselves on the basis of events of half a millennium earlier. And it seems to me a healthy dose of forgetting would have been a lot, uh, would have saved a lot of lives, whereas remembering cost a lot of lives. Let's, there's an interesting counter-argument to that that's, that's there in the pages of your books. It's a chilling quote that I'd never been aware of before, but there's a, a moment where you're describing um, Hitler making the argument to exterminate the Poles, and he says, essentially, why not? Nobody remembers the Armenian genocide. Um, so I, I never encountered that particular line before. But So there's, there's an argument for remembering in two different ways. The Armenians, first of all, feel as though that's been swept under history's rug anyway. And, and, and also, Hitler's basically saying, well, if nobody remembers these kinds of things, why not do them? Well, maybe. I, I don't think an appeal to the Fuhrer's wisdom is necessarily something. Well, that, I wasn't really going uh, there. But No, I know you were. But on the other hand, you know, I, I'm not sure that what Hitler said has, frankly, any validity. I mean, I would submit that despite the fact that George Santayata, the American philosopher, famously said that those who uh, forget the past are condemned to repeat it, I'm, I would like to have it demonstrated to me why remembering the past, whether and where remembering the past has stopped anything. I mean, the Shoah certainly didn't stop the mass murders in East Pakistan and what became Bangladesh in 71. They didn't prevent the Khmer Rouge from killing a million people uh, during their reign in Cambodia. And they certainly didn't, to to talk about something I witnessed, prevent the Rwandan genocide. So how does simply remembering the past 
change anything. Um, I have some thoughts about this, but since I've got Mark Oppenheimer sitting here, I'm sure your mind is percolating as well. Right. Well, I, I mean, I guess, I guess I'm wondering, David. So who's to do the forgetting? I mean, would would you have and and what what does that look like if it's in in praise of forgetting, as your book is called? And I am moved by arguments, and I think there is too much remembering. I have some sympathy uh, with your arguments, and and the fetishization of certain memories is obviously. An impediment to peace, but uh, you know, would you have the Armenians forget their genocide? Would you have the Jews forget their genocide? Well, it depends when. I mean, uh, in other words, while while people are still alive, to uh, who've suffered the affront, or even their children or grandchildren are alive, no. I I mean, I'm not trying to turn Santayana on its on his head and say, instead of those who forget the past are condemned to repeat it, that those who remember the past are condemned to repeat it. I mean, I'm not, I'm not just trying to flip it. I'm saying in some situations, forgetting, either actually forgetting or, if you prefer, agreeing to disagree and to turn memories into private things with no public context is better and you know the further pa- back the memory the more toxic and the least and the less accurate it's going to be in other words if uh, i'll tell you a story in 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 the former yugoslavia i was in in uh, belgrade in 93 and interviewing a nationalist politician there and as i was leaving one of the guys aides gave me a folded up piece of paper and when i opened it it said 1453 i.e. the date of the fall of Constantinople to the Turks. Now, what that message was, was we the Serbs, but it, it, but this cost lives. This wasn't some little funny joke. This was what the propaganda of that time suggested. We are defending Europe against the Islamic hordes. I mean, if you went to the Serb side of the lines around Sarajevo, you would actually see Europe being overwhelmed by a green wave, these were the posters they would put out. So, you know, the memory of 1453 was actually still murderous. And I think that the longer ago the affront, the more debatable the value, the moral value of memory is. I, I don't think it, within, you know, the first hundred years uh, or so that it's necessarily toxic, and I'm not asking anyone to forget anything. I'm asking people to think through what the effects of memory are. I mean, for example, to use the Middle Eastern example, you mentioned the Shoah. uh, I mean, until I believe the late 1970s, the the IDF's armored corps, the Israeli Defense Forces armored corps, did its passing out parade, you know, at the end of its base of of training on Masada, on the, you know, and is it really something that was good either for Israel or for peace in the Middle East? Reminds that, me of that. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. You go ahead. Sorry, that an element of the army of this country, uh, in effect, was saluting and identifying with a group of people who, when all was lost, uh, killed their families and then themselves. I'd suggest that that was probably the worst place they could have done their passing out parades if peace is your object. Uh, so, again, that's a, a more ancient memory. Uh, the question is, what you know, is there a sell-by date to memory? At what point does memory go 
from being something that's moral to being something that's cultivated, cultivated precisely the way that hatred is cultivated. I, I want to come back to that, but Oppie, what were you going to say? I was just I just read this. I can't remember where. I wish I could give credit, uh, but to the apocryphal story about. The uh, the Christians who say to the, the Jewish couple that's over for dinner, when are you people going to get over the Holocaust? And the Jew says, when are you people going to get over the crucifixion? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's I mean, at a certain point, these things become become uh, they end up becoming part of a religion, whether secular or I mean, I, I have to think that underlying your argument, which, again, I'm, I'm not entirely out of sympathy with, is a sense that. Uh, Religions have to go as well, and nationalisms as well, because underlying them all are these these ancient memories, right? Almost by definition, not the ones from forty or fifty years ago, but the ones from fourteen fifty three or thirty three. But they're not memories. I mean, that's another point I try to make in this book, and that I think is has to be thought through. There's no such thing as collective memory. What there are are the myths and uh, historical narratives that nations, peoples, groups uh, construct to describe their past, which always involves leaving stuff out, which always involves loading the deck in one way or the other. It could be loading the deck toward triumphalism. It could be loading the deck toward victimization. It could be loading the deck toward a bunch of other things. I mean, all three of us could think of those things. But it's not memory. Peoples don't remember uh, uh Individuals remember uh, what what peoples do are what communities do are create uh, accounts of their own past that either have or don't have legitimacy at any given point. I mean, I think collective memory, by and large, once above all, once the people who've actually suffered the affront and their immediate descendants are gone, then. We're not talking about memory. We're talking about myth, and we're not talking about history because history is critical history. We're talking about uh, we're talking about accounts that either breed solidarity or 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 any number of 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 conditions, psychic and social conditions. Some of which may be good, some of which may be bad. Again, I'm not saying we should always forget. I'm saying that forgetting should be an option. Oh, we're talking to David Reith uh, and to Mark Oppenheimer. So, um, you know, to that point, okay, so sometimes memories are, or, or, well, memories are a placeholder for a set of sensibilities. So probably one out of 10 Americans at this point could give you a fairly reasonable, fact-filled, um, semi-accurate account of what Watergate was. Everybody knows what Watergate was, but nobody really knows what Watergate was. But it, it gets used, right? It gets used instructively. Uh, it, it's a placeholder for various kinds of, of overreach uh, among the powerful uh, and unchecked uh, executive aggression. So the fact that in some ways it's been distilled or or, or maybe even just muddied by the passage of time, um, David Reef, that doesn't necessarily mean it can't be uh, a useful thing to invoke. Well, sure. Again, I, I, I repeat, I don't think memory is always toxic. What I'm saying is it's sometimes toxic and that My book is a kind of argument against what you might call the sacralization of memory, Mm. uh, of turning the act of remembrance, of commemoration, really, into a moral good and forgetting into a moral bad. I'm saying the picture is much more mixed. I'm not saying it's never appropriate to remember. And to some extent, obviously, 
communities. You know, Joan Didion once wrote, we tell ourselves stories in order to live. And, you know, to some extent, uh, you know, memory is a, con- I mean, memory, commemoration, the myths of communities are inevitable. But once you desacralize it, once you say that it's not necessarily in and of itself a moral good to remember, I think the the, the path is queered for a number of other responses in times of conflict. And I am, after all, you know, I'm in a, I'm a, you know, a kind of retired war correspondent. I spend a lot of time in a lot of different zones of war and massacre. And I've seen what the cultivation of memory uh, is in at least some places. And I repeat, the cultivation of memory in places like Rwanda or the Balkans, and I would argue in Israel-Palestine, is the cultivation of hatred. Um, I want to take one example from your book for a second because I think it's an interesting one and also because I'm sitting not too far from a place called King Philip's Cave, not to mention King Philip Drive and King Philip's School and lots of other King Philip stuff. But you talk about King Philip's War. So and this, again, can be a placeholder for um, a whole bunch of things, a whole bunch of ways in which Native Americans feel as though their memory, their story has been, if not extirpated, played down to the point where uh, nobody understands it, and that they feel as though they're reaping a residual whirlwind from this, too. Uh, it's one of the reasons that they object to to Native American mascots on sports teams. You know, if you're calling your high school football team the Warriors, and there's a picture of an Indian on your football helmet, you're kind of celebrating, I don't know, kind of how hard we fought when you were taking our land from us, something along those lines. So for the Native American, the argument would be, we're not remembering enough. You've, we've forgotten, you've forgotten way too much, and it's still playing out in our lives. We're still on reservations. We're still uh, getting the short end of that stick. So uh, talk a little bit about how you process that, David Reeve. King Philip's War is something you do write about in the book. Yeah, I'm quite obsessed with King Philip's War because, among other things, it was the most sanguinary war of colonial America in terms of proportion of people on both sides killed. It was an event that struck the colonists like a kind of thunderbolt. There was a, there were preachers after King Philip's War who, who spoke of King Philip's War as if it were God's judgment on the colonies. Now, of course, the vast majority of people killed were actually the, 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 the Native American tribes that had finally rebelled against uh, the colonial domination. Uh, but this is completely forgotten. But, you know, it's forgotten on both sides. Uh, here's this event. And this shows you what, uh, you know, how also fragile memory. Here was an event that in its own time was thought of as, as, a, as, a, as a central event in, in, in everyone's consciousness. And 200 years later, uh, I think very few people have ever have even heard of King Philip's War, let alone understand how how dreadful it was, how, how, how hideous it was. Memory is, I mean, that's why memory, collective memory, commemoration isn't memory because actually we don't, peoples don't remember, individuals remember. And, and the memories change. It's possible that the memory of King Philip's War will be revived by the Native Americans themselves. And it's possible, I'm not unsympathetic to that. Again, you know, because I'm so often told that I'm actually saying we should always forget. I want to emphasize that it might be a good thing to remember King Philip's War. But the idea, for example, that collective memory 
is always on the right side, as one might construe it, I think is disproved, to use another American historical example, by the memory of the Civil War between the late 19th century and certainly the Civil Rights Movement. Because during that period, at least, even though the South lost the war, Confederacy lost the war, the Confederate version of what the war had been largely became the American version. I'm old enough to have lived, I was uh, eight years old, at the time of the centennial of the uh, beginning of the American Civil War in, in 1961. And that was a Southern version, the, a noble fight between brothers, her- heroes on both sides, etc. That also was collective memory. And you could say, well, okay, that was the mistaken version. But who's going to adjudicate that? Again, most wars don't end with unconditional surrender by both sides. You know, the model of, I don't know, Germany after World War II where the occupying powers could, you know, set the course curricula, set the terms, put politicians in office who would hew to an anti-Nazi version of history. Of course, we all know they didn't entirely do that, but that's another conversation. That's actually an anomaly in the history of war. Most wars either end in massacre, historically speaking, or in a deal in which neither side fully wins, and therefore neither side's narrative is fully extirpated. You know, the Martians aren't going to come down and say, you know, version A is right, version B is wrong. And in that case, again, might it not be, at least in certain circumstances, better either literally to forget, if it's possible, or else simply to not make a, a great fetish out of remembering. All right. There's like 20 million places I want to go from where you just stopped. But since uh, we're on the Civil War, I'm going to go to Mark for just a second because uh, Yale uh, campus, where he spends a lot of his time, is struggling with a lot of these questions right now. I do, do also want to say, and I'll get in trouble for bringing this up again, but I was interviewing Jane Sanders, wife of Bernie Sanders recently, and I asked her her favorite novel, and she said Gone with the Wind, and I kind of gulped because that's exactly David Reef. That novel is sort of what you're talking about. It it really does represent uh, that sort of um, version of the Civil War uh, 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 that existed in between Reconstruction and the Civil Rights Movement. Movement, uh, a time of wonderful cavaliers uh, where chivalry was still intact and uh, men were great men and ladies were ladies and masters and slaves really liked, you know, that whole arrangement. Both sides were crazy about it. I just thought, oh, my Lord, you can't, that can't be your favorite novel. You have enough problems right now with, with black voters. But um, but but Mark, uh, Yale is struggling with this right now. Calhoun College is going to keep its name. Ben Franklin somehow or other came out of this in, in great shape. He's going to have a college named after him. Um, and so, You've watched this kind of struggle unfold right now. Right. How how do we commemorate? Uh, and commemorate is a word that David Reef uses a lot in his book. But how how are things commemorated? So as you've watched uh, Mother Yale uh, wrestle with this, what have you seen? Right. I mean, I I've seen uh, first of all, I've seen a lot of really sincere searching and some terrific kids uh, on both sides of the issue. Um, I think that you know uh, I would put I would choose different emphases from from David's, whose work I've really long admired and read read for a long, long time. I think, um, you know, uh, what's interesting to me is that sometimes uh, I think what Yale needs more of is is collective uh, memory of uh, accurate memory, <laughs> but but more personal. I mean, but more personal resilience in the face of unpleasant memories. In other words, what what I think um, the students need um, 
to do, and I think they've begun to do this with their most recent action where they had a, a kind of mock unnaming of Calhoun College, is to say, let's set the historical record right and let's um, let's have a, a stronger and more accurate historical memory, but let us personally have a little whimsy in the face of it. And I, I think that um, that actually, by the way, you know, as someone who works a lot in the Jewish media, is to some extent the Jewish model, which is, you know, there are going to be holidays for things. And to some extent, or to a great extent, national mythology is going to, st- you know, be one of the factors that stands in the way of peace. But, uh, but you know, Mel Brooks is going to do springtime for Hitler. And we make, you know, at least a couple of Holocaust jokes per week on our show. So we're not, we're not personally um, uh, uptight about it. But but we are collectively uh, definitely enthralled to to memory and some in some cases mythology. Mm-hmm. Well, you'll enjoy uh, in in the book in praise of forgetting um, uh, David Reif's descriptions of the use of kitsch or how easily these things kind of kind of tilt uh, into kitsch. I go I've got one but one call on the air here, and this this is really interesting. I mean, I, I could really talk for the next three hours to, to both of you about all this. Uh, here's Martin from Mansfield. Hi, Martin. You're on the air. Or you're not. He may, he may have given up. He may have forgotten, as we say. All right. Uh, so uh, we have to take a break or my producer will kill me. So we'll come back. We'll talk about more. We'll talk also about another story from Yale in which people did not have, in which people did have, according to Mark Oppenheimer, the luxury of forgetting. If you have millions, what will they all mean? One hundred years from today. All right. Uh, we're talking about uh, forgetting. In Praise of Forgetting is the book by uh, David Reif, the subtitle Historical Memory and Its Ironies. Also with us is uh, Mark Oppenheimer, uh, who is the editor of Tablet. Uh, he's going to tell us a story in just a second uh, about uh, something else that happened at Yale a long time ago uh, when people did have, uh, quote unquote, the luxury of forgetting. Uh, one of the things we will talk about here is uh, what life is in the digital age where nothing ever goes away. Everything is stored. If not remembered, it's stored. Um, before we do that, I, I did go to a caller before. We get some people just calling in because they like the conversation so much. I'm going to go back to Martin in Mansfield and see if he's there. Hi, Martin. Are you there? Hello, Colin. I'm here, and thank you for taking my call. Sure. Um, this is a great conversation, and I think it's something that we need to talk in the context of not just the the what, but also the how we, we remember, because they, those are totally different things. What remember is, I'm sure everybody has heard, that history is governed by the winners. How we remember it is how we progress forward. And I, I just wanted to, because um, it, it's just a great opportunity. Yesterday, as you all were talking about Jefferson, the how and the what of how we remember Jefferson is, is very different. We cannot judge from our own political context. We have to, it's really important that we do remember that we should not forget. But the hard part is we have to try to learn from that. Never forget. Never forget but always learn and how we put that into our own context. All right. Thanks for, thanks for your call, Martin. I will say, first of all, I'm not sure we were talking about Jefferson yesterday, but Jefferson is a nice example of what David Reif says, which is that memory is kind of taken out, re-photographed and revised all the time. And certainly I've gone from some adulation of Jefferson to thinking that not only is he, is he a jerk by modern standards, but he really was a jerk 
by the standards of his day as well. <laughs> and that there's some very repellent aspects to him. I think it's Paul Finkelman, Paul Finkelstein, who's really done, you know, probably the, the most damage to the memory of Jefferson. But that, he, he, that's a nice example of, uh, of one of these icons. It's kind of fungible and constantly being taken out and reused and repurposed and rediscussed. So it's, it's not static. Um, so, Mark Oppenheimer, I want to um, swing over to your thing because I also uh, I can't wait to hear what David Reef has to say about this. But you, you unearth what you sort of uh, what you uh, wrote about as kind of the first ever college sex scandal, which there probably were other. College yeah, sex that's scandals. a that's a, a conceit. I, I like, hyperbole. I like to think there were college sex scandals. You know, going back to you know Harvard College, uh, Harvard College's founding. Uh, in the new print issue of Tablet Magazine. Uh, I have a story about Susie, who was uh, briefly nationally famous in 1960, the month that uh, JFK declared for the presidency. If you're scanning the newspapers, the old microfilms from that month, um, Kennedy is is going to run for president. They declared much later back then. He declared 10 months before the election, but also popping up in the, fr- uh, in the New York Times, as well as Time Magazine, as well as dozens of newspapers across the country who had syndicated AP feeds, was the story of a 14-year-old girl from Hamden, Connecticut, just north of, of New Haven on the bus lines, who ha- had um, performed a lascivious act, uh, oral sex, on uh, a 20 to 25 Yale undergraduates. And the undergraduates were all arrested on the Puritan-era morals charge of lascivious carriage. If there were ever to be a book about her case, it, it would have to be called it lascivious carriage. And she was, um, she was also taken into custody, though I was never able to establish for what. And the, the men were all processed, or they were arraigned, they pled guilty, they were fined 25 or in some cases $50. They were suspended for a year, and then they returned to graduate, most of them to graduate from Yale. And I, I never knew what became of Susie. I'd, I'd heard lore of this case over the years from various people. Um, it, it actually, as I said, was national news briefly in 1960, but it came and went within a couple weeks. And that was the luxury of those pre-internet days was that you could make na- you could be nationally scandal- scandalous and scandalized. And then by a month later, you could return to your quotidian life, to your civilian life, and no one would ever know. And these men who, would, who were, you know, Again, uh, held up for ridicule in in major newspapers as as nineteen and twenty year olds. Within two or three years, were working for government. Were working. Were in law school. Were working as architects. They they went on to lead completely um, uh, untroubled lives. So what I did for this article was I tracked down a bunch of them and I tracked down her. I actually found Susie, who is now living under a different name, uh, far far from Hamden, Connecticut, and I tried to find out what what had happened with their lives. And it was just, um, it was remarkable for me because it was such a pre-internet story in that in, their lives had taken various trajectories, but in no case did people know what, uh, what a news story they'd been part of as young people. And, and uh, maybe we can come back to this because you find out some interesting things about how they were. But um, so David Reef, I mean, one of the differences between then and now is that nothing about that would go away. Nothing about that would have a life of two weeks uh, that uh, the names would become public uh, and they would stay public. They would be forever enshrined digitally. At the end of your book, you uh, quote from these two wonderful poems by, by Wisława Simborska, uh, and, and one of them is those who who knew what was going on here must make way for those who know little and less than little and finally as little as nothing in the grass that has overgrown causes and effects someone must be stretched out blades of grass in his mouth gazing at the clouds well i mean david reef is it possible that given the digital landscape we're just living in a world where never can grass overgrow anything that it's always scratched at and and laid bare again because everything is stored everything's recorded 
Well, yes and no. I, I mean, the the problem with that view, it seems to me, is the, the this storage that you're talking about, rightly in my view, is it in infancy. In 150 years, when everything is stored, what will that storage mean? There'll be so much information. There'll be such an information overload that... Um, you know, I'm not sure that the information will be usable except to discredit people. Sure. Uh, it's true that you – the internet means that your enemies, if you've done something criminal uh, or just horrible and whether it was criminal or not in the day, uh, you know, you can <coughs> – excuse me. You can always look people up and and find that out. But how much information is usable? I'm I'm actually – it won't surprise you to learn a skeptic about the web as well. I mean, I use it. It's a wonderful research tool. It's it's many other things. It it you know it allows you to have sort of these communities of elective affinity. But I mean, what it's, what's it going to be like when we have a thousand years of everything being documented? I mean, sometimes I think that'll just be the Tower of Babel, which in <laughs> effect is a cacophony. Um, so I, I, I'm I'm a little less convinced of that. I mean, the times have changed in the sense of Yale men. I use the words uh, intent, you know, intentionally. Got away with all these vile things as men have done, still do. Look at the Gomeshi case in Canada. You know, things have changed. They haven't changed that much. He basically got off. Um, uh, so you know, men continue to martyr women. That's part of the reality of our world and not just in Afghanistan. But uh, but yes, in terms of information, in terms of a promotion, if today if somebody had done that and was being considered for promotion at Goldman or wherever Yale students go nowadays, I suspect they still go there, um, it would be different because that person couldn't conceal it, sure. Right. We have a searchable Tower of Babel. So to, to that point, Mark, one yeah. of the things that you found out. Well, go ahead. Well, you're, you're so, right. I mean, it's, it's funny because on the one hand, the, the Susie story that I wrote that I wrote for, you know, for Tablet and TabletMag.com does suggest that um, in those days you could get, get away with it because there was no Internet. On the other hand, just as you talk, David, I'm thinking about another story I reported recently on a guy named Mark Gaffney, uh, G-A-F-N-I, Gaffney, who you've never heard of, even though he's been all over the Web uh, for a couple decades now. And in, in, this is a, a, a former uh, Rabbi who was run out of New York for having um, in the in the 80s having had a re- molested a 13 year old girl over a nine month period. Well, uh, he then fled to is to Boca Raton. He was welcomed there. He then fled to Israel. Now, in 2004, the girl actually gave an interview to newspapers in New York that were on the web because it was 2004. So you'd think, okay, well now he's done for, right? I mean, any Google search is going to pull up what Mark Gaffney has done. In fact, no, he moved out to the West Coast where he became the spiritual advisor to John Mack the CEO of Whole Foods. Now, you might ask, how is it that no one in the Whole Foods hierarchy did a Google search and said, uh, you know, it, just in 2004, well into the you know adolescence or even young adulthood of the web, here he is, uh, you know, being described as a you know as a as a child uh, molester or attacker or harasser or whatever. Uh, well, they didn't. I mean, it was probably on page five of the Google re- results because he had done a lot of things since, and it was a small ethnic newspaper. And the reality is that it had already been within ten years; it had been buried, as you said, under the avalanche of everything. So uh, you know that kind of forgetting uh, can can go on even with. Even with the web. 
that's sort of gra- in a strange way that's gratifying to hear. Not 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 <laughs> to the case very in point. twisted way. It's but gratifying it, to hear. But I, yeah, we were uh, thinking of. Uh, I was also thinking of Jack Montague, the Yale basketball captain this year, who who may or may not have committed a sexual uh, offense and never had an actual criminal proceeding. But this is going to follow him around, and because the to- the Tower of Babel is searchable, he, his name will be searched as he right. goes to his to his. Though he has a fairly common name, so I mean, which affects things, which is relevant, right? right. That if you have a name that's sort of more standard, then well, at a certain point, people say, I've spent 10 minutes on Google. You seem to, I don't find anything you seem to check out. Right. You know, ca- better to be Colin McEnroe in that case than Mark Oppenheimer, right? It'll pull up lots of people in, you know, County Shannon or whatever. Better to be, to be <laughs> Capulet than Montague. Yes. Um, <laughs> all right. So, I mean, David Reef, I, I just want to come back to maybe the, the end of your book because obviously so many of the examples that you give um, are examples – uh, uh, that that would be, would be useful if we could reach that sort of Vislawa Samborska point of just, just saying the past is past, we have to go on. And certainly some of the really contemporary examples of uh, of what Al-Qaeda thought and, and the way in which uh, the notion of the Crusades and Crusaders uh, was used and manipulated uh, by uh, Al-Qaeda and like-minded groups. And, and similarly, really, the notion of the caliphate fueling so many of the aims and goals uh, of ISIS um, – it would be wonderful if we could sort of park that somewhere and just deal with the present and deal with our future. But I just wonder whether we're wired well enough to, to be able – I mean, how much evidence is there that we can get to that moment where we're lying in the grass, looking up at the clouds, forgetting what's buried beneath us? Well, the first thing I would say is a very grim uh, thing to say, but is I'm afraid – I think the unquestionable truth, which is that in the long run, everything will be forgotten, even the most terrible things. I mean, in the fullness of time, maybe not this century, maybe not ne- next century, maybe not a thousand years from now, but, you know, 10,000 years from now, are people really, if the human species survives and has history with the same intensity of the past 5,000 years, is it going to remember even the most terrible events, even the Armenian genocide or the Shoah? I mean, I would submit to you it will not, that that's the reality, the real, the truth. I mean, Trotsky said war may not be, you may not be interested in war, but war Mm -hmm. is interested in you. I would say you may not be interested in the uh, the geological record, but the geological record is interested in you. And to use a more proximate example, (laughs) I was just in Dublin for this centennial of the Easter Rising. I've spent my, practically my entire life obsessing about Ireland. And, and so I wasn't obviously going to miss the centennial of, of the rising. And uh, I looked and it was very brilliantly done. I think everybody on all sides did uh, an unexpectedly good job. Uh, the government, uh, Sinn Féin, the, the loyalists, everybody. I mean, given what could have happened, it was brilliant. But I was there and I, I spent a fair bit of time in Ireland. Uh, I thought... 300 years from now, are people, if there is a Republic of Ireland, just as if there is a United States or anywhere else, are people really going to have the same intense relationship as they do today? And today it's less than it was 50 years ago when survivors of the rising were still around. So, I mean, I do think there's a term limit, a shelf life, even to the most terrible or glorious Memories. We already know this, by the way, about glorious memories. I mean, look at all these memories to, in, in our country to Civil War generals you've never heard of, but who in the time 
were incredibly important and celebrated. Uh, so, I mean, we are going to forget. The question is only when, how, and what we're going to do while we remember. All right. You know what we're going to do? We're going to take a break here. We may be talking to a scientist who can tell us how to erase memories. Well, we may just continue with the conversation we're having with Mark and David, which is so fascinating as to be... I'm unwilling to interrupt it. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan, who's very upset about a plot of land her family, the Monsantis, lost when Ferdinand I of Naples died in 1494 and Charles VIII invaded the peninsula with a French army of 25,000 men, including 8,000 Swiss mercenaries, possibly hoping to use Naples as a base for a crusade against the Ottoman Turks. Also by me, Kion Wolf. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Louis XII. For show pages, articles, and a 7,000-page history of the Here and Now show, visit our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, the vivid story of sex researcher Wilhelm Reich. And now, back to Colin. There is some way in which uh, tomorrow's show connects back to today because there certainly are people right now who are very concerned with rehabilitating the somewhat tarnished image of Wilhelm Reich. And we will be talking to them tomorrow. And believe me, they are very concerned about that. Uh, so uh, right now we're talking about the book In Praise of Forgetting Historical Memory and Its Ironies. Uh, David Reef is its author. He's joining us from NPR Studios in New York. Here in studio with me is Mark Oppenheimer, editor-at-large for Tablet Magazine. He writes the monthly beliefs column for The New York Times. And many people call in and say, I don't feel like I'm getting enough Mark Oppenheimer. Where could I hear more Mark Oppenheimer? I just have to have his voice in my ears all the time. And so he is the host of the Unorthodox podcast for that reason, because he knows. Uh, he knows you have that need. I'm just crazy. not in people's ears enough. Right, right absolutely. So listen, you can listen to the Unorthodox podcast uh, as well. Uh, and we have people calling in here at 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. So, you know, David Reef, to, to this point, I, I, one of the you know arguments that you make repeatedly in the book is that, 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 that memory is uh, rarely, how can I say this? Me- memory is rarely curated with no particular sense of gain or possible use in mind. That it's, you know, somebody always has an agenda. You could also make the argument that people have that about the present, too. I mean, for example, when the Titanic went down, there were editorials that ran immediately. As soon as it was known that men supposedly gave up their places on the lifeboats to women, there were editorials um, that ran in newspapers all over America saying, well, this is a great argument. This is why you can't have women's suffrage, because uh, women are different from men. And, and it's there's sort of a trade-off, you know, that, that, that men are going to do certain kinds of things and give up their places in the lifeboats and cast votes. Uh, and women, because women have this cherished other status. I'm not really sure exactly how this argument made in a way was made in a way that held water at all. I'm clearly not making it in a way that sounds very persuasive, but but I mean it's sort of an example of how, of how even the present is manipulated. Um, and and so one argument for memory I, sometimes is the, that it's a longer lens. You know that the more you pull back, the more you can understand. First of all, how an immediate memory was was manipulated, and also how it might be understood. Uh, with from the vantage point of history. Yeah, but I take the opposite view. It won't surprise you both to know, um, because I think your, your memory and history are not only not the same thing; they're usually, in practice, uh, immiscible. 
That is to say, history is critical history. History is looking back on the past and saying the past, you know, as the great L.P. Hartley, the, the, the English writer, says it in the first sentence of the go his great novel, The Go-Between, the past is another country. They do things differently here. Uh, that's what uh, history is. History is about criticism. History is about com- making things complex. History is about showing that nobody's a saint and nobody's a complete sinner. Uh, memory is about solidarity. It's about the present. It's using the past for the purposes of the present. Uh, it can do that all along. I mean, they say, I don't know enough about Judaism to feel competent here, certainly not in Mark Oppenheimer's presence, but I do think <laughs> I that... Will, I will uh, forgive your mistakes in advance. You're pre-absolved. Thank you. Oh, Go ahead. It's like it's Yom Kippur ca- all the time right here. Excellent. Thank you very so much. So what were you going to say? Uh, I was going to say that, you know, there is an argument uh, that Yerushalmi and other people make, which is that... Uh, you know, Jewish memory is 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 at the key to things, not history. I mean, Yerushalmi actually says that, I believe, in his little book, Zakor. Very wonderful little book, Zakor. And I, you know, I don't think history and memory, I are, I think they're rarely the same thing. But history, I, can, I, can I interrupt? Wh- whether it, sure. So you were saying, you know, memory is about solidarity, but we tend to think of solidarity as a good thing. And what I see in contemporary America, if we can get very highfalutin, is, you know, because we're people without a common memory, what we have in common is consumerism, right? What we have in common is Super Bowl Sunday. I don't disagree with any of the points you're making about memory being invented and being and, and mythologized and very different from, from history. I mean, you know, I, I went to school to be an historian, not to be, a, you know, a, a mythologizer or a rabbi or anything uh, or a priest. Uh, but, but um, you know, solid, it, is, it is one of the functions of the curated memories that they provide solidarity, which can be a valuable thing in the face of, you know, the the ravages of presentism and capitalism and consumerism and all these sort of contingent things that don't have a grounding in memory and that don't have a human logic. Yes, but I, I don't, again, we don't, we don't disagree as much as perhaps we both thought we would before this program started. Uh, but, I mean, who's to judge? I mean, the, the problem, uh, Svetan Todorov, the great, French, Franco-Bulgarian moralist, had for a while the idea that somehow we could separate the right use of memory from the abuse of memory, of which he's painfully aware, and which you are, and, and, and anyone who thinks about this subject with sort of moral seriousness is. But the fact of the matter is that memory may indeed have, uh, the lack of memory may indeed have this noxious function in our society, but you know, the two in the twentieth century, the true regimes that most cultivate, most were in sort of committed to the cult of memory were Stalin's Russia and Hitler's Germany. So, you know, it's a mixed bag. Again, I come back to sort of my original point, and forgive me for re-emphasizing it, but of course, there are times when memory can serve very positive purposes, but there are too many times when it is murderous and serves very wicked ends and regimes to allow us, in my view, to rightly sacralize it. 
Is there some caller mentioned this? And let me see if I can phrase it in a way that's we're, we're almost out of time anyway. So, David, don't give us a long answer. But, you know, I mean, it, it seems as though, uh, to your point just now about how Hitler and Stalin cultivated memory and commemoration for the most nefarious possible purposes. It seems as though one other possible purpose of memory would be forgiveness, would be to learn and understand forgiveness. And it that just seems like such an incredibly subsidiary use of memory. Is that, once again, just how we're wired or? Uh, how the human narrative works? Well, I think many people, certainly in the human rights movement, believe that forgiveness, that 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 right remembering, if I can use the kind of philosophy 101 term, is uh, the the prerequisite for forgiveness. I'm I'm more with Edna Longley and her statue to amnesia, which the Irish should erect and then forget where they put it. Mm. In in war zones, again, it, it utterly depends on the context. It also depends on the culture. Memory is, I mean, what, what's an obvious way to put this? In great in the great religious traditions, I'm not a person of faith, but in you know, memory is obviously more important in Judaism than it is in Buddhism. Uh, we're going to have different ethical contexts for memory, as well as memory that will be. Uh, perhaps an antidote to the sorts of things that Mark Oppenheimer is talking about in our own culture. And I agree with that. Right. We have to uh, we have to go right now, unfortunately, we're absolutely out of time. Although I will say, read David Reeves' book, and actually I should have brought up the, I think it's called the Pacto uh, del Ovlido in Franco's, post-Franco Spain, where there was sort of an agreement to forget. And there's something similar that's happened in post-Pinochet Chile. Maybe that's an answer to my question, how we begin to forgive. First of all, we begin to forget. We agree to forget. And maybe we can then forgive. All right. Well, we got to go. Thanks to Mark Oppenheimer. Listen to him on Unorthodox. I know you're going to start jonesing for him like 10 minutes after this thing is over. Uh, and thanks very much to David Reef. And uh, thanks to Betsy Kaplan, immaculately produced as usual. Oh, my God. I forgot to do the last word.